You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, and for those that want to, I'm going to post our notes in our Google Drive folder. Um, If you would like to use those to follow along during the sermon today, you're more than welcome to. Those will be up momentarily. Um, last week, as we were working through Genesis chapter, the end of chapter 27, starting into chapter 28, we were uh, discussing what our summary sentence said, the idea that when God seemingly disrupts our plans, it provides opportunity for us to reflect and realign with his will if we have deviated from trusting him and his promises. And so we talked about the fact that Esau, Jacob, Isaac, Rebekah, They all had plans. They were all up to something at the beginning of chapter 27. And then we said that God kind of brings everything to a pause temporarily as plans are discovered by individuals who were trying to keep those plans hidden. Um, Everybody has to kind of rework their plans. Isaac and um, Esau were kind of off on the side trying to uh, get Esau the blessing without Rebecca, without uh, Jacob knowing. They were doing it kind of in secret. Um, you know, we've speculated that Isaac probably knew, based on the prophecy given to Rebecca, that um, Jacob was supposed to get that. Uh, he may have even been aware that Esau had sold his birthright, and so he was failing to honor his word. So they're trying to do it in secret. Um, we talked about how Rebecca, rather than confronting her husband lovingly, rather than uh, being a supportive wife who, uh, when need be, prompts her husband to uh, to get back to doing what God has called him to do. She manipulates and deceives and, and tries to work things out for the good of the child that she favors. We see Jacob kind of being a pawn in the whole thing. Um, and then we saw ultimately that some people changed their plans and realigned them with God's and others didn't. We saw Esau um, continues to, to miss the spiritual point of what he's supposed to be doing. Um, he tries to avenge for his failures. He had attempted to get or to gain uh, the birthright, he failed, he's angry about it, so he tries to kill Jacob. He then tries to make up for it with his dad by marrying more women uh, because he perceives that his dad's love and his dad's acceptance is tied to uh, the good works that he can accomplish. And so we see Esau continues to miss the point. Uh, we saw Rebecca, who had done everything to try to protect her son and had tried to get him into the position of blessed son. She ends up losing her son, right? She ends up having to send him away so that he doesn't get killed. And so we said she never sees him again. Um, she just loses him um, and never sees him again. He goes off to, to be with Laban and their people back in Haran, and there's no indication she ever sees him again. But we said Isaac, um, he does realign himself. We, say that, we said that while he blessed Jacob unknowingly the first time, that he does come back and willingly blesses him, willingly chooses to bless the son that God had chosen. And so I challenged you last week with application points that ultimately the family has to be working the way that God has designed it for us to avoid similar turmoil. And so we read through Ephesians where it talks about the husband playing his role, the wife playing her role, uh, the parents playing the role that they're supposed to, the children responding to that role, and it it builds healthy families, which God desires. And then we talked about uh, both persecution and accommodation being real threats to our faith, that They send Jacob away, one, because there's fear of persecution from Esau, that he's going to kill Jacob. And then they also send him away to find a wife that won't pervert his religion. And so there's this idea of accommodation that he may settle 
and it may shape uh, his faith moving forward. And so we talked about those being real threats to our faith as well, that Scripture talks about us not being conformed to this world, uh, not giving in to the discouragement that may come from persecution, but allowing that to instead grow our faith. All right, um, so that brings us to uh, Genesis chapter 28 once again, and we are going to look at the back half of Genesis chapter 28 briefly uh, to set the stage uh, for some discussion points this morning that'll set the stage better for us to understand Jacob um, and his story moving forward. So if you have your Bibles, turn to um, Genesis chapter 28, and I'm going to bring our notes up here in just a second after we read our text this morning. So Genesis chapter 28 in verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So Jacob obeys his parents. They say, go back to our family. And Jacob, in his journeys, the sun sets and he needs to rest. And so he takes a, um, a napper or he goes to sleep. And it says in verse 12, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood before it. Or above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob, uh, maybe for the first time really in the story, is, is starting to define himself and the character that he plays. So We've seen Esau making decisions. We've seen Isaac and Rebekah. We've seen Jacob heavily being pushed in different directions by his parents and by um, the circumstances of the situation. We haven't seen Jacob dialogue much. We haven't seen him and the choices and decisions that he makes. That begins to unfold now, um, and we begin to see him kind of branch out and, and start to do some of his own things and uh, some of the choices that he's going to make, um, which got me thinking— just the, the role that Isaac was supposed to play in the lives of his boys, the role that we play as Christian parents, the desires that we have for our kids. Ultimately, our kids are going to grow up and there's going to come a day where they step away from our family, right? And they're forced to start making their own spiritual choices and decisions. And that's what we have playing out in this story. Now, I think Jacob's much older than what our kids would be. Um, you know, I, I think from the, from the dating uh, of what we see that he's probably... Um, 60s, 70s, maybe even as high as 80s, so far different than um, a kid graduating high school and stepping out and going to college, but what we see playing out is very similar. For the first time, he's no longer under his parents' care. He's no longer submitting to their authority uh, 
in, in, on a daily basis as he lives under their house, he's now kind of on his own, and now he's going to start making spiritual choices and decisions. And we see maybe for the first time him interacting with God and his faith with God on a personal level. Um, and there's some choices and decisions that he's going to make based on that interaction. And we're going to come back to this uh, here in a few minutes. But I want us to consider um, as a church uh, and as parents the role that we have in the upbringing of our children um, and so I want us to direct our attention to two summary sentences. And something we're starting today is I've provided our kids that are in the kids' class their own notes, um, and so they're going to be following along with us. But the summary sentence for us as adults, the church is called to partner with the parent in order to sufficiently instruct our children to recognize the good promises and faithful actions of our God leading each child to make a personal choice to worship him appropriately. So kids, y'all can put y'all's at the top of the page or on the back because I forgot to leave a spot for you. Um, The kids' summary sentence, your parents and your church want to teach you to trust God and worship him. Okay, so that's what we want your parents to do. That's what as a church we want to do for you. We want to teach you to trust God and to worship him. And you see this kind of playing out in Jacob's mind. After he has this vision with God, He kind of steps back and says, okay, you'll be my God if I determine that I can trust you. If I determine that you're a good God and a God that can be trusted, then I'm willing to give my life to you. Now, we may could question and wonder and say, why is he just now wrestling with this? If he's in his upper adult years, where's Isaac and Rebecca and where's their teaching and and where where is this uh, taking, where, where was this not taking place earlier in their life, right? Um, but for whatever reason, he's, he's kind of reconciling this dream and he says, okay, if, if God shows himself to be a faithful God, a good God, a God that can be trusted, then I'm willing to submit to him, right? He says in verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Okay. So Jacob's kind of working through this, and he says, okay, I'll make the decision to make the God of my father my God if I determine that he's a good God and he's a faithful God, a God who keeps the promises that he just made to me in this vision, then I'll make that personal choice to follow him. Our church and every Bible-believing church in this area and, and around the globe, we are called to partner with the parent. And we are called to sufficiently instruct our children to recognize the good promises and the faithful actions of our God. And as we do that faithfully, I believe it will lead our children to make personal decisions to worship him. We're going to talk about what it means to worship him appropriately. So for our kids, I want you to remember your parents and your church want to teach you to trust God and to worship him. As I've been thinking through some of the parental implications of what we've seen with Abraham and Isaac, and now we get into Jacob and Esau, and ultimately we're going to see Jacob and some of the parenting decisions that he makes. It's called me to kind of step back and reflect on um, parental decisions that we're making within our church, but then also our church's decisions and how we're handling the spiritual growth of our children, all right? And so I want to to pose a question this morning that I want us to, to reflect on just briefly before we get into uh, some different text in Scripture that I think will allow us to flesh out that summary sentence. But the question that I want us to contemplate this morning regarding the perseverance of our children, 
Will our children see enough of God's goodness at Sovereign Hope, causing them to submit to him personally and leading them to love his church faithfully? We've talked a lot in recent months about the perseverance of the believer. Um, and, I, and I hope we all agree that we have children that are believers here in our church, right? They don't become believers when they, when they become adults, right? We, we've baptized kids in this church. We believe that they are members of the body of Christ. So their perseverance should be just as concerning to us as the other men and women in your small group, right? We want to see them make it to the end. We want them to, to grow up, to trust God, and to put their faith in his promises, and to say no to the world, and no to sin, and yes to righteousness, so if we're thinking in terms of perseverance of our children, are our children going to see enough of God's goodness? And maybe better to, to emphasize, are they going to understand enough of God's goodness at Sovereign Hope as children in a way that causes them to submit to him personally and to love his church? Right? We want our kids to love this church. We don't want these kids to grow up being forced to come to church. I don't want any kid to ever come through Sovereign Hope and to reflect back on it and say, I was forced to go to church. I hated going to church. I got nothing from church. It was a waste of my time, and, and it wasn't until, uh, or I looked forward to the day when I could make the choice to not go to church. I don't, I don't want anybody to have that type of experience here. I want our kids to come to be a part of our church and to learn the things that Scripture wants them to learn that will cause them to submit to Jesus and to love this church, and to grow in their love for the church as they grow in their understanding of what's going on here through our church. All right, so that's kind of the question that we're going to wrestle with in some of the texts that we're going to approach this morning. All right, um, in your notes for our adults, there's a mandate to teach uh, children that's given to us in Scripture. Um, and I think specifically the text that we're going to see is that we are called to, 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 to draw our, t- our children to think of God regularly so their hearts are drawn to trust him. And I think that should permeate everything we do as parents. I think as a church, we have the responsibility to come alongside, to partner in drawing our kids to think about God regularly so their hearts are inclined to trust him. Let's start by looking at Genesis eighteen nineteen. So keeping it in context of our Genesis study, Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. This is God in discussion about whether to tell Abraham about Sodom. You'll remember we talked about this passage, and it's kind of a nod to the Trinity here, as God is seemingly uh, talking uh, within the Trinity. Um, It says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You remember, God is letting this kind of play out in narrative form. Here's why I'm telling Abraham in advance what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because I want him to take this incident and use it as a teaching tool to his children so they can then use it as a teaching tool to their children and beyond. 
I want him to use it as a teaching tool for righteousness and justice, for those concepts to be upheld within the family. All right? And so we see that there was a mandate that God had given, an expectation that God had upon Abraham to teach his children the things that he was learning as well. In Psalm chapter 78, for our kids, y'all can be working on the questions that I gave you on your notes if you haven't answered those yet. Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 7, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Obviously, the idea here is that we're to teach our kids in such a way that they're going to turn around and teach their kids. So as parents and as a church, as members of the church, we see kids running around our church. And we should have this mindset and perspective that we want to invest and teach in them in such a way that it leads to, to the grandkids that come knowing God and knowing what God has done and grasping his promises and putting their faith and trust in him. So our investment in the kids that are in this church should have an effect on the coming generation that's not even yet here. It says the children that are yet unborn. All right, so again, a mandate that we have a responsibility to teach the children. But then maybe uh, the most familiar passage and one that's very clear, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is where we really see this idea of thinking of God regularly and the kids' hearts being drawn to trust in God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Let's pause right there for a second, because I'm going to give you some, um, some points that I think we can draw from this. All right, The commandments that they're teaching are commandments that come from God. All right? It's being communicated. God's told me these things. I'm telling you these things. And these are things that are going to be passed down to kids. It says, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. The first thing that jumps out to me right here is, one, is that the commands of God are to take center stage over family preferences. Think about that for a second. The things that we are to definitely pass on to our kids are the commands of God. Now, we all have different family structures. We all do things differently. Our parenting styles are different. The things that um, we set up in our homes are different. The rules are different. I have to remind some of my teachers about this because they want to start speaking to some of our kids at school like parents, and they want to start uh, stepping into like relationships and whether a kid should be in a relationship this early or not. And, and I have to remind them, hey, this is parental stuff. Like We don't want to we want to overstep our bounds as educators. I know you have some strong opinions about some of these things, but some of these things are, are preferential that we're going to let the parent handle, right? So there's, there's all different kinds of preferences. We all have different rules and, and, and standards and, and different things in our house. 
But the thing that we're absolutely commanded to do to pass on to our kids are the commandments of God. And that should be consistent in all of our families, right? The commands of God, because that's where uh, this, is, this authority is being built right here at the beginning of Deuteronomy 6. This isn't, this isn't pass on family values. This is pass on the commands of God. Then it talks about the fear of the Lord driving us to obedience. So the second thing there is that a healthy fear of God should be understood by our kids. As parents, we should be instilling a healthy fear of God. As a church, we should be helping our kids to understand a healthy fear of God. It says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. The third thing I wrote down as I was reading and studying, longevity and perseverance is the goal here. Right? This isn't just teaching them and, and hoping for obedience until they're out of the house. It's not just teaching them and hoping for obedience up to a certain stage in life. The goal is for the rest of their life. We're we're looking long term. We want to see these individuals persevere to the very end. This is true for us as adults, but certainly true for the, the, the children that we're called to pass this down to. It says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. The third thing I wrote down or the fourth thing I wrote down, doing things God's way results in us gaining the things we most desire. Right. For for our kids that we're desiring to to grow up in their faith, we pass on the commands of God. We try to pass on a healthy fear of God. We, we, We come at it from the perspective of perseverance and longevity. We want to see our kids grow up all the way into their faith for the rest of their life. But then we ought, to, we ought to allow our kids to understand and to embrace this idea that when we do things God's way, we gain the things that we most desire, right? It says that, that if you'll do this, God's going to multiply you greatly and God's going to fulfill his promises and, and your life's going to be long and you're going to be on a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is specific stuff to Israel, but this pattern is all through Scripture. That when we do things God's way, we flourish, And our kids should understand that. We need to understand that as adults, but our kids need to understand that, certainly. This truth flows from Deuteronomy 6. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I wrote down next in my notes, theology is needed in order to truly love God. He says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But let's make sure you understand who we're asking you to love. He says, the Lord your God, he's one God. right? Understanding that the, the Trinity, the triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one God. And the, and the idea here is that, that a correct theology, we have to understand who God is to, to really love him correctly. Loving God with our hearts and our souls and all our might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Next thing I wrote down is that hearts versus actions are the target. Hearts versus actions are the target. Matthew 22, 37 reiterates this. The idea of loving God with our heart He says, I command you today, these commands today shall be on your heart. 
Right? We, we want to be careful as, as parents and as a church that we don't uh, look simply for outward conformity. Right? Too often we see and we hear horror stories of kids who, who did it the church way, did it the parental way, until they were out of the house, and then they made choices and decisions that were completely contrary to all of their upbringing. And, and the focus and the goal had been outward conformity, do it my way, do it this way, and there was never any heart change. The, the heart was never really addressed. And, and the idea here in this teaching is that the heart has to be the thing that is changed, not simply the outward actions. Next thing I wrote down in this passage, it says that worship and spiritual education begins in the home, right? He's passing this mandate on to the parents. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The spiritual education of our children begins in the home. And we're going to talk more about the role of the parent, the role of the church. But ultimately, the commands of God are best passed down in the culture of the home. Right? And that's, that's what we see here. And I don't think anybody would dispute that, that if the expectation is to bring your kids to sovereign hope and have us change them and, and save them and teach them and, and nothing's happening at home, then, then we're bound for failure. Right? It has to be at home. It has to start at home. The, the commands of God are best passed on in the family context. And, and, and he's very specific about when and where, right? Times when you're sitting down at home and, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, when, when our schedule's clear at home and, and there's, there's evenings where we're just at home as a family, times when we sit down and have a meal together, those are times where we as parents have the opportunity to draw our kids to a deeper knowledge of God through spiritual conversations. It says, when you walk by the way, times of travel, times when you're in the car, um, times when you're traveling somewhere become opportunities, teaching opportunities, when you lie down and when you rise, bedtime and morning time. And he talks about binding them on your hand and the frontlets of your eyes and writing them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I think this is opportunities within our house to even have visual teaching tools about the things of God. You know, one of the things that as our kids grow up and have a better understanding, like Lauren and I have, um, for those of you who've been to our house, have the tree in our house with that, that looks like a map. And we've got different missionaries that, that we value as a family and pray for as a family. And, and that's a teaching tool for us. That's a visual for them to see people that we're close to that are in different parts of the world sharing the gospel. Um, opportunities to put things in our house that draw our kids' attention. Um, that's why we've got different things in our church even. Um, things that our kids can look to and can see the things that we believe about God. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. I think here, you know, the thing, something I jotted down is that we're called to recognize God's promises being fulfilled. We're called to recognize the provisions that come our way. We're to be reminded of his past faithfulness to do these things as well. Right? God says, as you come into the land and you realize that you're being given things that you don't deserve and that you can't explain, 
Don't forget about your Lord. Remember, he's the one that brought you out of Egypt. As parents, we should be constantly drawing our kids to see God's provision, to see him as the source of everything good in our life. That it's not because daddy works hard. It's not because mommy works hard. Right? It's not because we've, we've, we've pulled ourselves up and, and pursued the American dream and been able to earn this stuff. This is God's provision in our life. This is God allowing um, the, the earth to function the way that it does and allowing us to reap the, the benefits of hard work, but ultimately it's sourced in God. And being able to draw our kids' to attention to things that God has done in our past that they're not aware of. Right? There was going to be a generation that would come into the promised land that wasn't there that, that came out of Egypt. Right? They weren't a part of that group that came out of Egypt. And yet, what we see in the Old Testament is this constant reminder. Remind them what God did for his people in Egypt. Remind them of how God delivered them from slavery. As parents, we get the opportunity to, to help our kids think about God and to help them see his past faithfulness. Why? Because Jacob, Jacob's standing there, and he's, about to, he's, he's, he's wrestling through a personal decision. He says, I'll make you my God if I determine that you're good and you're faithful. As parents, as a church, we want to help our kids see that he is a good God and that he is faithful. So they do want to make that, that personal decision that personal decision to submit to him. We can also say something else I wrote down here is that God is to be known in a way that makes him superior to all other gods. Right? It says that we don't have to turn our, our affection or our hope to any other gods in the land, that it's the God who saved us from Egypt that is the God to be served. Verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at, Mas- at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. And his testimonies and his statutes was he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you, as the Lord had promised. I put down thorough obedience in light of his goodness is to be a priority. It talks about us diligently keeping his commandments doing what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be a righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The last thing I wrote down about this passage, there's an expectation for us to be able to answer the questions that our kids ask us, right? It says, How are you going to respond to this when your child asks you? What is the meaning of this? He says, be prepared to give them answers. Be prepared to show them God's goodness and his faithfulness. All right, so there's a mandate to teach. God had this expectation on Abraham. We've already talked about it. Psalms talks about us being uh, faithful to, to teach and to include the children. And here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see that it really starts at the home, that the parents have such a great responsibility to direct their kids' attention regularly, to do it in such a way their hearts are inclined to trust in him. All right? Um, Let's talk in our notes here about the role of the parent in the life of a child. The role of the parent 
in the life of a child. Kids, I don't have notes for you on this section, but if you want to listen, this is what you should be expecting from your parents. Okay, so um, these are things that you can hold your parents to because Scripture calls them to this. First off, the parent bears primary responsibility for the spiritual instruction of the child. We've already emphasized that. All right? Let me give you a couple of points here. First of all, parents are called to trust in the Lord for the ultimate care of their children. And everybody needs to take a big, deep breath of fresh air right here because this is, this should be so liberating that it's not contingent on you not making mistakes, right? Because you're going to make mistakes. As parents, we are all learning how to raise our children. And we like to lean on the, the experiences of others that have gone before us, but their kids are different than our kids, right? Um, and our personalities of our kids are different, and so they function differently. And so even trying to follow a set formula doesn't always work, doesn't always produce the same thing. Right? It'd be great if, if our kids worked like seedlings and, and we could just do the same thing to them as, as another parent has done and get the same result. But that's not the case. Right? So one of the encouraging things that we see from Scripture is that parents are called to trust in the Lord for the ultimate care of their children. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. That first part of that psalm emphasizes this idea that it doesn't matter how much planning you do, it doesn't matter how much effort you put into it, that without God moving and working, it can be futile. All right? So, so as parents, we have to remind ourselves that we trust ultimately in God for the care of our children. That means that there's no policy, there's no rule, there's no amount of diligence, there's no amount of wisdom that can replace the value of God's work within your family, right? So it's not a, there's no amount of books that you can read to secure the, the, the health and success of your child, right? It, it's not that the, the least amount of mistakes will result in your child having the best life possible. It ultimately boils down to God being at work within your family, and I think your kids profit far more from seeing a parent, a husband, a mom, a dad, a wife that is submitted to God and God working within the family versus trying to be the, the, the perfect parent that doesn't make any mistakes. This is a freeing thing if we can grasp our minds around it. It helps us fight against worry, fear, anger, control, blame. These are common parent sins that, you know, we try to step in and, and, uh, and protect our kids at all costs and it's easy to, to think that that responsibility falls completely on us, right? But we can trust that, that God is ultimately the one who cares for our children. But beyond trusting in God, what, what responsibilities do we have? Number two, I put parents are called to instill a particular message in the hearts of their children. As I read Deuteronomy chapter 6, just this mandate to teach our children, and that's, that's parental mandate, it's also a mandate placed on us here at the church that we are to raise these kids to fear God, to trust God, to believe his promises. But I think particularly there's a specific message that we have to make sure that we are teaching to our kids. It's a message of obedience, yes, but understood in the context of repentance and forgiveness. Let me draw to you two verses that I think balance the teaching that we're to provide to our children. 
Proverbs 22, 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, so there's this idea that we're to teach our kids how to behave. We're to teach our kids how to act. We're to teach our kids how to choose rightly. Okay? But we don't want to err on the side of, of moralism to where it's all about outward conformity. We don't want to be guilty of being parents that preach and teach so hard to our kids that they need to be good kids. They need to be good kids, and we don't allow room for failure because just like you as a parent are going to fail, and thanks, thanks be to God that he's ultimately in control of the care of our kids, our kids are going to fail, right? But we've all been around, or maybe all of us have, maybe some of us have come from families where the expectation to be good was so high that it didn't leave room for failure. Look what the, the um, message in Luke twenty four forty seven is there. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. We'll start reading verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. See what Jesus says there? He says, the message that's to be passed on is a message of repentance and forgiveness. We have to be careful as parents that we don't teach, and as, as a church that we don't teach a, um, a message that's, that's works-oriented. Right? We don't want to be guilty of, of preaching and teaching and expecting in our parenting a works-oriented religion where our kids are expected to be good and there's no room for failure. There's a message of repentance and forgiveness that has to be communicated. Jesus says that's the message that's supposed to be passed down. What it looks like to repent of sins, to admit wrong, and to experience forgiveness. Parents are called to instill a particular message. There's certainly an obligation to teach, to instruct, and to discipline, but the Bible has some specific things to say, even how we discipline. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul says there's a way that we're supposed to discipline that it doesn't brood anger in our kids and how they respond to that instruction. The flip side is in Colossians chapter 3. This passage sounds really similar. Paul's the author of both, but he really has a different mindset here because I even checked the Greek words and they're different Greek words. Colossians three nineteen it says, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You really have two flip sides here. You have the kid who, who is angered over your discipline, and then the other kid who is discouraged to the point of despair over your discipline. And I think the Lord has blessed us with two boys that, that, that are on these both extremes. When, when you discipline AJ in my house, AJ... His heart breaks a lot quicker than Abram's. Um, you have to kind of, 
you have to come and pick AJ up a little bit because his spirit can get crushed very easily. I mean, you you start to talk with him and he knows he's in trouble, and I mean, the tears start to flow in and, and his heart starts to break. And you have to interact with AJ differently as a dad and as a mom in the discipline of AJ. Abram, as I've shared a couple weeks ago, the boy will dig in and he will yell and he will he will show anger. Um, he's not pleased that you're correcting him and he's not broken about it. He's not upset about it. He's upset that you're you're addressing his behavior, and I think that's that's two two passages here that speak to both Lauren and I as we continue to learn how to discipline these boys. They function differently, and we have to be able to discipline them and train them, instruct them in such a way that we address the anger, and we don't do it in such a way that that Abram grows up with anger being provoked constantly through the discipline, and that we also don't allow AJ to despair. That we're teaching both repentance and forgiveness. I'm in modeling that as parents to them. Parents are called to instill this gospel message of repentance and forgiveness. But number three, parents are called to both freedom and obligation regarding Deuteronomy 6. As a parent, if you read Deuteronomy 6, there is some massive responsibility there. Like, I hope we don't just gloss over that and think, yeah, I'm supposed to teach my kids. Like, there's some real intentionality that's supposed to be happening in the home if we're really going to follow through with what Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about. Some words that I wrote down that I think will help us to remember what Deuteronomy 6 is about. Relax, act, and enjoy. The word relax. There's no specific formula given to us about how to do Deuteronomy 6. So there's freedom here. So it's not that as a parent you're supposed to have Bible study seven days a week with your family and you're supposed to lead them through books of the Bible and they're supposed to memorize X amount of scripture before the end of the year. There's no specific formula. The heart of Deuteronomy 6 is that as, as parents, and I think uh, when possible, most rightly done and led by the father, there is to be intentional instruction given to the kids, to the whole family, specifically to the kids in that passage, that they're raised to see God as a good God and a faithful God. Why? Going back to where we're at in Genesis 28. So that when your kid grows up or gets to that point of understanding, there's not doubt in his mind as to whether I should choose God or not. Remember Jacob says, You'll be my God if I determine you're good and faithful. As parents, we ought to be leading our kids to see that. So that there's no, let me wait and see. It's, let me respond because my parents have been showing me this all along. Relax that there's not a specific formula, but certainly act because you're called to be intentional. You're called to be intentional in teaching your family. And then the idea of enjoy here is because I think in Deuteronomy 6, we see that obedience is to flow from gratitude and hope. We see what God has done, what he's currently doing, and this hope of what he will do. One point to make here, Donald Whitney says, Without some regularity and structure and purpose, it is one of those things that we assume we are doing but never actually do. As parents, we may be guilty of thinking, yeah, I'm teaching my kids to love God. Yeah, I'm teaching them about their promises, about the promises of God. I'm teaching my kids that. Interesting if we polled our kids to see if they would respond as passionately as we may about how we're teaching our kids. It's something that, that if we're not careful and if we're not intentional, it's something we think we're doing that we may not really be doing. We may think that it's happening in our home. Oh, yeah, I have conversations with my kids. I pray with my kids before they get to bed. And If we're not careful, we're not, we're not really being intentional with it. And, and, and days and weeks and months go by. 
And let me be the first to confess to you, this is not easy. Like Lauren and I try to have spiritual conversations with our kids. We try to have sit down, let's, let's read a Bible story and talk about God before they go to bed. That happens sometimes, and then sometimes it goes a while without happening. Right? So this isn't me saying, hey, I've got it figured out. This is how I'm doing it. Y'all better start doing it too. But it is me saying, hey, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says well, this should be some intentional action here. Otherwise, we just kind of go through life thinking that we are doing this with our kids, and we're not really. The role of the parent, primary responsibility in the instruction of their child. But I do believe there's a role for the church. The church plays a secondary role, but has great responsibility in the spiritual instruction of the child. Okay, so the church plays a secondary role, but has great responsibility in the spiritual instruction of the child. Kids, this is where your notes pick back up. So there's a lot of things that Scripture says about the parent and what the parent does. We're interested in what the church and its responsibilities are right now. Because in our Man Up Breakfast and, and other, some other discussions, we've been talking about what's best for our kids here at Sovereign Hope. How do we ensure our kids are learning and growing and understanding what it is we're doing here on a Sunday morning? All right? Um... Church plays a secondary role, but has great responsibility in the spiritual instruction of the child. Go as you're finishing writing that down. Some of the questions that we talked about in our discussion time this morning. What is your parental mission? What is your, what is your job as a parent? The thing that I wrote down, to love, care, and provide for my children in a way that leads them to trust and obey Jesus. I think that's what God has called us to be as parents, as as parents who are submitted to his word as Christian parents, we are called to love, care, and provide for our children in a way that leads them to trust and obey Jesus. Some things as a church that we're called to do, I think. First of all, the church should create an environment where they can be instructed through words and example by older Christians. So for our kids' notes, kids, your expectation for our church, we should be a place where older people teach you. I think that's very clear from Titus chapter 2. I think that works its way all the way up to where there's older men teaching younger men, but it's certainly true that we should have older, younger men teaching our younger, younger kids, both from a male and female perspective. The church should create an environment where kids can be instructed through words and example by older Christians. And I think both are really important. Right? I think our kids learn by being taught by somebody, But then I think our kids learn maybe just as much by watching older people. By watching older people and and what they're doing and what they're saying and how they're acting. The church should create an environment where they can be instructed through words and example by older Christians. So for our kids, the church should be a place where older people can teach me. Secondly, the church should value them as important members of the body of Christ as they submit to Jesus. The church should see me as a valuable member of this body for our kids. We've we've baptized um, a few of our kids here at Sovereign Hope. I know we have other kids that have come and have joined our church that were maybe baptized at other churches. Um, Maybe this won't embarrass them too much. Can I have Libby and Maggie come? Stand out here real quick. You don't have to do anything. Just come stand right here with me. No? 
Will you stand up for me so everybody knows who we're talking about? Just stand up real quick, and then you can sit right back down. No? Libby, can you stand up? Libby, standing up. Okay. Here, here's what I've been thinking about as, as, I, as I've been wrestling through the role our church has, kind of thinking about Jacob and him making personal decisions to, to decide, am I going to follow this God of my parents or not? We, we baptized Libby. Libby, you can sit down now. We baptized Maggie. We baptized Luke. Okay? And, and as I was praying and thinking and meditating about the, the role that our church has with these kids, I was also thinking about the role that they have within our church. Because here's the facts. If, if we baptize them, then we truly believe that they're Christians. Based on their testimony, based on their confession of faith, which means everything that we read about in Ephesians 1 is possessed by these three kids. And I'm only talking about these three kids because we've baptized them here at this church. There's other kids that are saved that this is true about as well. They possess all the spiritual blessings of Ephesians chapter 1. They're also indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And if they're Christians, as we proclaim them to be, they have spiritual gifts. And not spiritual gifts that have to wait until they're adults to start using them. I'm fearful of the church culture that that is arising that says kids need to wait to be a part of the church until they're older. Because if we're baptizing these kids, these kids are a part of the body of Christ. And they have spiritual gifts that should be used in the body of Christ. Now that puts expectations on us as a church. We've got to figure out how to include them as the body of Christ. But I think it's a mistake to devalue them and say, you don't get to be with the adults until you're older but we admit you're a Christian and we admit you have spiritual gifts and we admit that you're valuable to the body of Christ. You know, going back to the the pictures that Paul has about the body of Christ, can you imagine telling one of your body parts, hey, I'll use you later? No, like we value all of our body parts, right? Like we don't don't have body parts that, that become valuable later on down the road, right? They're always valuable to us. And I think we should be a place where the church shows value to our kids and I think our kids should feel the value which means us potentially restructuring some things. And, 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 a, and, a, and a minute step is that, is that me saying, as I prepare notes, I want to make sure that our kids walk away with something from the sermon. If I'm going to ask them to be in here, if I'm going to say that I want the whole family in here as much as possible, then I should certainly be teaching to the whole family in such a way that the whole family can leave with something. All right? Um, number three. I know we've got to hurry because we're running out of time. The church should model appropriate worship through the proclamation of the word and administering of the ordinances. For the kids' notes, the church should teach me how to worship God. What do I mean by that? Well, in Genesis chapter 28, I don't know, first time I read it, I was like, yeah, Jacob's figuring it out. Jacob recognizes who God is and, and wants to worship God. But then I, I stepped back and I delved a little bit more into it, and we're going to talk about this more when we actually study this part of the text, but... We've already said that Jacob kind of walks away from it with an ultimatum. God's going to have to come through before I submit. This isn't, this isn't Jacob coming and saying, I'm the creation, you're the creator. doesn't matter I'm supposed to submit myself to you. He kind of walks away saying, yeah, if you'll do these things for me, then I'll follow you. What's interesting to note, though, is that he builds a pillar. And that's different from what we've seen from Abraham and Isaac. What does Abraham and Isaac build? They build altars, Right? 
And we learn later in the law that they are forbidden from building pillars. And you have Jacob building a pillar and pouring oil on it. And if you initially read it, you're like, hey, Jacob's worshiping. And then you delve into it a little more and you're like, but he's not doing it right. Because we're going to find even later in Genesis that God says, go back there and build an altar and worship me right And I think it's so important. Part of the the thing that I think we're called to do as a church is we're supposed to teach our kids how to worship appropriately. How to worship appropriately. We do that through the proclamation of the word. We do that through the Lord's Supper. We do that through baptism. Um, We are out of time. We're going to come back to this, I think, next week and finish some of my thoughts and notes on this, specifically for our church. Um, Application, though. I want you as parents to be thinking about this question. What are ways we can include our children more during our Sunday service? And then from a kid's application standpoint, discuss with your parents any thoughts you have on how the Sunday sermon can make more sense to you. What we didn't get into is my notes on why I believe it's healthy and good for our kids to be in the service with us. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Um, I will tell you that I think it's, it's more... Um, it's not mandated in Scripture, okay? so it's not a right or wrong. I think it's up to us to determine what is most beneficial, most healthy for our church family. And so I want to share with you why I believe having our kids in the sermon as early as possible is important. Um, and I want to share with you some of those thoughts, and we'll do that next week because uh, of the time that we're at right now. Um, but two points of application for you to leave thinking about. What are ways we can include our children more during our Sunday service? Kids, I want you to share with your parents what would help you understand the Sunday sermon better. And then parents, you can come prepared to share with us during our discussion time next week some of your kids' thoughts on that topic. Okay? Again, today's sermon meant to set up the fact that Jacob, as the chosen son, is now stepping forward and making spiritual choices on his own. Our kids are going to get to that point as well. There's a lot we need to do before they're, they're expected to step out on their own. A lot of teaching, a lot of instruction that we're called to, to, to do as parents and as a church. And I want to make sure that we're doing that faithfully. Um, and so I hope today has at least given you some things to think through, and hopefully we can build upon that as we look more at Genesis 28 next week. Let's pray. Father, we, we are humbled by the fact that you have entrusted human beings that are created in your image into our care. And so for those of us that are parents, we look around and I pray that we would be humbled by that fact that you have entrusted these children to us and they are created in your image and you have called us to grow them up into a knowledge of you. But not just a knowledge that allows them to know stories, but a knowledge that allows them to connect the acts of that you have performed to your goodness and your faithfulness and your worthiness to be followed. God, I pray that we would be so faithful to teach and instruct, that we'd be so intentional in our homes and here at our church, that as our kids grow up and reach a point of understanding the gospel, that they are ready to make that decision And that it's not contingent on them seeing whether you're going to be faithful and good. 
It's based on the fact that they have always seen you to be good and faithful based on how we as a church and we as parents have been instructing them. God, I pray that you give us deeper wisdom and insight in knowing how to to grow as a whole church family. Pray that you give me wisdom as as the lead teacher here to know how to do this in a way that allows Sundays to be beneficial for all that come in here. Pray that you'd be with our kids, that they would grow to know you as you've revealed yourself in your word. And God, I pray that all of us in here would see the, the partnership that we have with every parent in here. So even if we're here and, and don't have kids, that we would see that we get to come alongside parents and and participate in the growth of all the children of our church. Pray that we would do that well. Pray that you would lead and guide us in knowing how to do that well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.